Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our two guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be our two favorite public health and infectious disease doctors, Paul Carson and Paul Sieslak, to help us learn how to evaluate medical claims we may hear about from our friends, family, or media. Andrew, why is this important? You know, I, I don't know if this I'm the only person, this is kind of a bee in my bonnet, but constantly, I think you'd look really cute in a bonnet. But really, I don't need that visual image, Andrew. <laughs> you, you know, I I feel I find myself talking about this a lot, and um, you know, one of the undertones I think of this episode is trying to help us be better consumers of medical information and better citizens of the country, such that we can engage in non-polarized discourse and. So often, I mean, we've, we've talked about it before on the show that people find themselves in echo chambers of people who agree with them and uh, everything associated with that, especially in family medicine. I, I talk to people, I'd say most people disagree with me <laughs> in, in, in different ways, you, anyway. you know, yeah, they, they, they come back, which is a, is a very kind thing, but, um, I get to talk to people with varying points of view on everything, uh, health-related in particular, but other things. And so it's very interesting for me to see how they interpret information and how I may interpret it differently and try and communicate about that. But this is something that I, I wish they would teach in elementary school, and it's, it's a hole in our national education, I think. And we may have something when we talk to the two Pauls about the elementary school system that they're doing actually in Uganda to prepare kids. It's pretty amazing. But before we get there, I want to talk about a TED Talk that Paul Carson recommended that I listen to by someone from Yale named Daniel Kahan, spelled K-A-H-A-N. And the, the title is, Are Smart People Ruining Democracy? And, and the subtext for this, he calls it the most depressing neuroscience study ever. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, and when I looked at it, it's like, oh my goodness. And it takes up uh, something called motivated reasoning. That is, we look at data to try to confirm what we believe more than we look at it to punch hole in, in our beliefs. So what, what they did, and I'll discuss it in, in general, not, not with specific numbers, because that would be a little confusing on air. But what they basically did is invented this study. They made up the numbers. It does not pertain to reality, but near and dear to my heart, they did it related to a skin rash and a cream to make it better. So they have four numbers in this box, this two by two box. And the numbers are in one row, those who use the cream where the rash got better in one box and the number of people where the rash got worse. In the second row, people who didn't use the cream over time, did the rash get better or did the rash get worse? And they asked people to look at the numbers and say, what conclusion can you draw? Can you draw the conclusion that the cream made the rash better or that the cream made the rash worse? And when they looked at the data, a number of people misinterpreted because they were looking at either raw numbers. And the bottom line was they were supposed to look at ratios or percentages. And once they were educated, they got pretty good about doing this over and over again. Well, then they took the same numbers, but they changed what was on the rows. And what they changed from skin cream and rash was to gun control laws or not, an increase or, in, or decrease in gun crimes. So and they even though the numbers triggered people, right, Tom? Ooh, uh, well done, Andrew. Well done. Yes, they triggered people. And, and, and I think you're right because they looked at the same numbers. The people knew how to interpret the numbers, yet people would misinterpret it to favor what they wanted the data to show consistent with their prior beliefs, even when shown. And here's the depressing part. The smarter people were with regard to manipulating numbers, a term they refer to as numeracy, the better they were with math, the more likely they were to ignore what the data showed. 
See, that is so frustrating. I mean, Tom, what is that? Is that just a, a false confidence that the, the smarter you think you are, the more confident you are and you just get <laughs> further off base? I'm sure the Pauls are going to help us with it. I think it, it ties into something called a motivated reasoning or, or confirmation bias. We're just looking for things to confirm what we believe. And we kind of almost willingly have a blind spot to things that might show that we are wrong. So that's something that we need to do with them because this has happened a ton over the last two years with COVID. We're going to talk about a lot of non-COVID related times when this has uh, affected uh, the public in different ways, uh, hopefully through a number of different stories that will help to bring this out. Yeah, I, I get accused occasionally of selective hearing but this this confirmation bias seems like an even greater sin where we're totally ignoring another side maybe just unintentionally we're just not used to putting ourselves in in a contrary position yes and and uh, daniel cahan and his group did another study to try to see is there any hope for overcoming this and their initial foray into that has identified something called science curiosity, which is different than being good at science or math. And when they took groups of self-identified liberals, moderates, conservatives, the smarter they got, the more the liberals and conservatives would diverge on issues in general, except, except if they had a high level of science curiosity. And they measured that simply based on uh, I think there were four things when they finally honed it down. At least once a year, do you go to a talk on science just because it's interesting? Do you follow science articles in your news feed? Do you read things about science just because it's interesting? And, and there was a fourth one. So it had nothing to do with expertise. It had everything to do with just interest and kind of willingness to be surprised by information. Well, that that could speak as well, I think, to the the people with less, you know, number literacy. I think was the word they used in the studies, um, or numeracy. Numeracy, yeah, less numeracy. You're just willing to accept it at face value, and man, we could use more of that, I guess. Well, you know, I was reading a book from an author, Ian McGilchrist, that one of our favorite guests has recommended, uh, Kevin Majors. And in the book, he he talks about the difference between left and right brain thinking. And this one part on creativity really got me going. He said that academics are awful because they have excelled by heavy use of the left side of their brain, which follows rules and a very narrow way of looking at things, whereas the right side of the brain is open to surprises. But people that have made their mark in science and math and received tenure often are so left brain dominant, they kind of almost shut down the big picture of the right brain. So I wonder if that's part of it. If we have Kevin here, I would ask him, but we don't. (laughs) But we have somebody better. We have Paul and Paul here. I I guess our, our goal with this episode is to shine the light on something that might be a blind spot for many of us. And hopefully my goal is to get better at looking critically at data so I can pursue the truth. At the end of the day, that's that's what we're going for, right, Tom? We want the truth. That's right. So before going on, we get to do our medical trivia question of the day. And for the second time in uh, Dr. Dr. History, we have a question recommended by Paul Seaslack. Yes, Paul, this is an honor of you. Category. Controlled studies of health outcomes in the Bible. There are are many of them, and I chose one. So the the question, in what book of the Bible do we see a controlled study of the beneficial effects of two diets on the health of two groups of individuals? You may know it right away. You may want to think about it. You're not going to get the answer till the end of the show. We'll be right back with Paul and Paul here on Dr. Doctor after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor and our interview tonight with Paul Carson. He's in Fargo, North Dakota, where he teaches at North Dakota State University. He's an infectious disease specialist. He's a professor that teaches future masters of public health students. Paul Cieslak is in Oregon at the Oregon State Health Authority. He's also an infectious disease specialist working in the public health arena in a public way. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, Paul and Paul. Great to so, do that. So, Paul Carson, yeah. So, uh, so, why is this such an important topic about how we should evaluate medical evidence? 
Right. So I think we can acknowledge that all of us are literally bombarded with health claims, all, all kinds of different claims about what will make you better, what will make you sick. And people are more and more independently looking up their own you know, information on the internet or discussing this with friends and family and trying to take more control of their own health decisions, which in some ways is, is, is a good thing. But we need to have some skills or abilities in evaluating various health claims because they are all not all created equal. And what's a story that you would you know like to share that kind of illustrates the importance of doing it right? Yeah, I, you know, one that came to mind for me was from you know back early in the HIV/AIDS uh, epidemic. Um, this, this was a really terrible time for you know, people suffering from this disease and infectious disease doctors trying to take care of them because uh, first we didn't have any good treatments and we, and they, they would come down with just terrible opportunistic infections and malignancies. And we'd watch them sort of waste away before our eyes and die. Um, and then antiviral therapy came along and it, uh, after a few bumps and starts with it, it was really looking to be a miracle in, in turning things around for people with HIV but I, I regularly had these patients that would uh, that were very dubious about uh, about taking these drugs, and and there was a a prominent researcher. He was actually a cancer researcher, but who came out with a claim that HIV wasn't even the cause of AIDS; that it was lifestyle choices and the drugs they took, and HIV was just this innocent virus tagging along. And so I would have these patients getting sick who. One may not have even believed that they that HIV was really doing anything, and two did not want to take these antiviral drugs because they didn't think the virus was real, or or they were um, listening to some conspiracy theories that the pharmaceutical industry was kind of making all this up to drive up their profits and sell drugs and so on, and so they would turn to a lot of the alternative therapies. You know, I, I remember some of the things like milk thistle and coenzyme Q and. Uh, oh, I wish I could remember the whole, there was a number of them that they'd bring in, you know, a list of these different things that they were going to take instead of the antiviral drugs that could save their life. And I'd literally watch them waste away and die for lack of knowledge. And um, it was tragic and it was maddening. Over to you, Paul Cieslak. What What's a, a story that, uh, you know, you recently heard in a in a doctor's lounge that kind of illustrates the importance of what we're doing here. Well, I, I overheard a surgeon on a phone call with a patient uh, when I was in the, this doctor's lounge, and it was pretty clear from just the context of the conversation that the patient had found a bunch of stuff on the internet and was asking the surgeon, well, shouldn't I be doing this? And shouldn't I be getting this therapy? And uh, and, and the surgeon was kind of talking about all the various points that the patient was bringing up. But I, I can really relate to what the surgeon ended up telling the patient, which was, you have information. What you lack is experience and perspective. And uh, how, how to interpret that information, I think, is, is very difficult for, for lay people and even sometimes for uh, physicians. So I think it's, it's good to keep in mind that... Um, that, that it is worthwhile seeking out people who have the perspective, who have seen a lot of patients, for example, and, and are familiar with uh, the different sorts of things that a given piece of information can represent. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I had a patient recently that I was caring for, and something we're seeing a lot in my area is the advent of these order-your-own-lab tests. You don't need a doctor's order. You just wander in and order whatever you'd like, whatever you saw online. And she brought me a, a list of these cancer markers, and some of them were, you know, 3% out of the normal range, you know, these statistical normals. And this lady has got some vague symptoms, but nothing cancer. And, you know, normal screening's all been negative. And so then she's like, well, what does this mean? I'm like trying to explain, you know, pretest probability, and these are not screening tests. And I don't know. I feel like I'm I'm talking to folks about this a lot and trying trying to help them understand the different the different types of data. I know Paul Carson, you you teach in the Masters of Public Health s students at at the university there. What are some of the types of studies that people might be exposed to? 
It's actually one of my favorite lectures to give. I, I give it to, the, <laughs> to my students at the beginning of the year, and I show them this sort of pyramid of what we call the hierarchy of evidence. And it's not all studies are created equal by any means, or not all observations are created equal. And before you even get into what, what happens with humans, um, you can so show people test tube studies or things that are in animals. Those are a far cry from like making a, a conjecture about what this is going to do in a person. And lots and lots and lots of those things that show up in a test tube or show up in a mouse or a chimpanzee or whatever never bear out to be something that has any relevance for human beings at all. And then we get to the sort of low, low level, low quality evidence, which is like a case, you know, or a case series. The aphorism I use in my class when I teach this is, you know, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Well, let's make a health claim out of that, that eating your fruits and vegetables leads to less hospitalizations or longer life. Well, you have the case. My grandma ate apples or root vegetables or fruits every day, and she lived to be 95. And so did 10 of her friends. <clears throat> Well, there could be all kinds of other things that might explain that. So then we want to get up to like better quality studies in the sort of middle range or what we call things like ecological studies. That's not about the environment. That's These are studies where you look at trends in populations that are kind of going on at the same time. Let's look at the countries that eat more fruits and vegetables compared to the countries that eat less fruits and vegetables and see how much cancer they have or how long they live or whatever outcome you want to measure. And the problem with those studies is, is they're not actually looking at the people who actually ate the fruits and vegetables or not. They're just looking at these big global trends. So we say those types of studies ask a question. They don't answer a question. They, th those observations of this followed that, or these trends seem to be appearing at the same time, are the start of science or the start of a question. Then we want to get into things that have better quality, things that have a control group. Uh, and there's a bunch of different kinds with that. And you can basically break these down into, did a researcher assign the exposure, a drug or a treatment or a diagnostic test? Did they assign it to one group and not to another group and follow it? Or was it a natural experiment where we're just looking at people that like took this uh, uh, supplement or drug or treatment and, and other people who didn't? The highest quality is when a researcher assigns it because that gets rid of a lot of the kinds of bias the next step down is people that did this on their own, and we're trying to match them up as best we can and observe them. That's a great description, Paul. And I'd like to move back to Paul in Oregon. And a term we often hear, which is a little bit amusing to me, is evidence-based medicine. What does it mean, and what alternative would there be to evidence-based medicine? Uh, well, I think ideally ev evidence-based medicine means that you very specifically state up front what you're looking for, what kind of an effect you're looking for, for example, in a given medicine or a vaccine or something like that. And you look at the studies that address that specific question, and then you you rate those studies in terms of uh, Paul Carson's you know, pyramid of uh, quality of evidence, and you, you rate them as uh, high quality evidence or, or uh, medium quality evidence or low or, or very low. Uh, and then um, it, it allows you to sort of uh, pick your way through through the data that are out there and, and uh, come to a better conclusion. You, then, then you make a recommendation and, and you state up front, you know, whether you're, you're recommending this based on low quality evidence or, or whether it's based, you know, on very high high certainty evidence, you know, how, how certain are you that, that this is going to happen? The lowest quality evidence is, is uh, expert opinion. So if all you've got <laughs> is, is a doctor's opinion about it, uh, that's, that's considered pretty low. You're looking for, for data. You know, one, one of the terms that gets thrown around a lot is uh, two findings are correlated. But that's one of the contrasts we want to draw in this episode as well, the difference between correlation and something being caused or causation. Paul Carson, t tell us about this. What should we know? Sure. So um, we, our brains are hardwired to make associations, right? So what we, we are evolved to try and say, I did this, and then this thing happened afterwards. And, and that's a reasonable thing to do. You know, the example that uh, I, I use in my class is when 
Jenny McCarthy. A lot of people know her as the, you know, she was a model and kind of a, you know, B actress, uh, B movie actress. And her son developed, actually it's debated what he had, but, but probably some type of autism or developmental uh, disorder. And she said, you know, I, he was fine. He got vaccinated and then something changed. My son is my science. That, that, that was her statement. And I, and I, I asked my students, like, was that reasonable for her to, to say? And the answer is yes, th- that is reasonable. It's, it's an observation. She saw something follow this, this exposure, and, and she, she thought everything was bef- fine before that. The problem is, is that we, th- that's, that's a really low quality of evidence, and it's very prone to all kinds of uh, problems. The, the example we give is, you know, the rooster that crows before the sun comes up. <laughs> um, maybe thinks he caused the sun to come up, but it's a strong, strong correlation, but it is not causal. Well, and I think with that autism vaccine thing, it's, the studies have clearly shown that there is not a relationship, but they have shown there's an incredibly strong correlation between autism and the increase in money spent on organic food. <laughs> I mean, have you seen it? The correlation, okay, a correlation coefficient can be between negative one and plus one. Zero means there's no correlation. One would mean it's a straight line as one increases the other. The correlation coefficient for organic food sales and autism is 0.997. That's like incredible. And yet there's no evidence that th- there's, there's a reason that that would be the case. Yeah, let, let's be clear. We're using that entertaining example as probably yes. another spurious correlation um, that really uh, almost for certain has no uh, likelihood in actuality. And, and actually, uh, Paul Cieslak is going to get into a little bit later um, some of the other things we use to help with that. So there are all kinds of these spurious correlations and they are the start of a question. They are not the answer to a question. Um, they I mean like per capita, per capita cheese consumption, 0.95 correlation with people dying who get tangled in bed sheets. Who'd have thought? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a website Paul Carson told me about, TylerVegan.com. On Spur- it's, it's funny. These it's are hilarious. pretty, pretty yeah. clever. You know what? It says Nicolas Cage films coming out in one year and drownings in swimming pool. Those are correlated. Now, yep. How could they cause each other? I mean, nobody even looks because it's so crazy. Obviously, they're not related. But when you're just looking at things being related, it is a huge and wrong jump to say they're naturally causal, right? right? Yeah. And and so we we should say, I mean, sometimes correlation is causality. I mean, it's the start of a start of looking uh, at a question. There was observations that, gee, it seems like most people who developed lung cancer were smokers. But you got to go the next step to try and get better evidence quality to, to prove that. And many times these correlations turn out to be uh, spurious or, or they're, they're really indicating something else that's the real cause that if, happens to travel together. Yeah. If they're not totally spurious, what are some of the other things that might lead to the correlation but not imply causation? Well, first of all, you could have reverse causation. And uh, an example that I would pick is that um, uh, some studies have shown, for example, that people who uh, own guns are more likely to get shot than people who don't own guns. So that's kind of uh, strange, right? You'd think they could defend themselves from getting shot. But you have to ask yourself the question, well, why did they buy the gun in the first place? Maybe it's because they thought they were at risk of getting shot and better get something to defend themselves. So people who live in riskier neighborhoods are, are going to tend to uh, to buy more guns. So that's just one example, uh, reverse causation. And when you're seeing a cross-sectional study, a study that asks, you know, is, is collecting both the outcome and the exposure data at the same time uh, is liable to that kind of thing. So uh, Paul Cieslak, also there's something called the ecological fallacy. How does that play in here, uh, especially with regard to the importance of a control group? Sure. Well, uh, Paul Carson mentioned the ecological fallacy a a little bit earlier, but what it is is comparing groups of people and their exposures and their outcomes. So, for example, if you were to notice that uh, uh, people in France drink more red wine than people in the United States and people in France are less likely to have heart disease than people in the United States, then you, you might 
come to the conclusion erroneously that, you know, that it's the red wine that's preventing the heart disease. Whereas really anything that's part of being in France could explain it. It may be, uh, you know, eating lots of smelly cheese, for example, might be <laughs> what's preventing the heart disease. You, you don't know until you uh, compare on a, on a person by person basis. And, and that's what a control group is. It's really to try to compare you know, either people with the disease to people without the disease and ask them about their exposures or to compare people who are exposed and who are not exposed and then find out who got the disease. Paul Cieslak, you you have a quote that caught my eye uh, and I'm excited to, to get to that. It's, it's a little bit of a PG quote, I guess, but it's designed to illustrate <laughs> the importance of not jumping to conclusions. Can you give that to us? Yes, thank you. I have to find the exact quote here. What was? No, I I, uh, I, I love this quote and I, I take it to heart and I, I remind people of it uh, pretty regularly. But he's talking about the importance of being being skeptical skeptical and not uh, jumping to conclusions. So here's here's the quote from George Santayana: "Skepticism is the chastity of the intellect, and it is shameful to surrender it too soon or to the first comer. There is nobility." and preserving it coolly and proudly through long youth until at last in the ripeness of instinct and discretion, it can be safely exchanged for fidelity and happiness. So I, I rather like the metaphor there, but it is important not to, uh, not to latch on to the first uh, you know, association or claim that you hear and to reserve judgment in, until you've um, seen as, as much of the data that you can see. I think sometimes people feel like skepticism might be a, a personality flaw or just a glass half empty type of attitude. But when it comes to, you know, digesting medical information, I think it, it is very protective. Paul Carson, you know, with regard to um, Paul's quote there, can you think of an example where you may have believed in a finding and made recommendations too soon and weren't skeptical enough until the idea bore fruit? Yeah, we were gonna we were gonna avoid COVID, but the one that comes to mind the fastest for me was not following my own sort of advice and hierarchy of evidence when the test tube studies suggested uh, significant benefit from hydroxychloroquine. I got pretty excited about that, and I I tried to get our health system to acquire a bunch of hydroxychloroquine, and and I think it maybe was reasonable when we didn't have anything to treat COVID sure. back then. But I was I was. Uh, a pretty big advocate. And I tried to help our state uh, through their pharmacy association, you know, get a lot of hydroxychloroquine. And then when the data started coming in of randomized controlled trial, one after another, after another, and we got up to, I think about 10 or 12 randomized controlled trials, none showing any benefit. I was kind of looking back at public forums where I had talked about this kind of going, Ooh, I should have been in the words of Santiana, a little more intellectually chaste and uh, <laughs> And on that note, I think we'll take a break here before we delve into the second half of this topic of evaluating medical evidence here on Dr. Doctor. And we are back with Dr. Doctor. I don't know if anybody else is as excited as I am about this episode, but we've got Paul and Paul here, um, public health and infectious disease, and we're talking about how to sift through medical information and get it right in pursuit of the truth. Paul Cieslak, my mom and dad are, are doctors, and they would always repeat to me an adage when I was in med school that half of what you are learning is going to be found out to be wrong in the future, probably in 10 years, but you just don't know what half it is. <laughs> I, I don't know if everybody else heard that, but during the pandemic, we've seen these medical studies reported real time without the benefit of rigorous peer review, and most medical subjects, you know, it's kind of behind the scenes. What, how, how should people understand this? I think a lot of people feel like they've been on a roller coaster being thrown around and, and science isn't allowed to change. You guys just told me to do something. Now you've changed your mind. What's now, the deal? That, that, that's a great is observation. That um, it is normal for science to work this way. Uh, you know, a, a lot of studies come out. There, there may be an animal study. There may be, as Paul Carson noted, a, a case series that raises some interesting hypothesis. And then somebody may try to study it. And then we want to see if that's, that finding can be replicated. And uh, most of the stuff that's coming out early turns not 
to pan out. If, if you study uh, drug formation, most really promising candidates turn out not to work out. Either they don't provide the effect that you want or they have uh, intolerable side effects that, that you don't want. Um, and so we're used to seeing things go this way and, and used to reserving judgment until we see some uh, really good studies. So the problem is that uh, with so much attention focused on the pandemic, and I, I get why people are paying attention. I mean, it's been affecting their lives in, in ways that a uh, few things uh, health-related have before. So people are paying attention to every little study that comes out, and it gets magnified by the fact that the media are constantly wanting to tout every new potential finding, and uh, you know, and we're, we're getting quizzed about it the following day. And it, it kind of makes it difficult for the normal scientific process to play out. Paul Carson, I think something to, to show where uh, studies are, are kind of ignored and sometimes ideology can um, take the front seat affected your own medical society that you and Paul belong to, the Infectious Disease Society of America, regarding something called chronic Lyme disease. What happened there and what kind of errors did people make regarding evaluating medical evidence? So there's been um, kind of an ongoing controversy, not so much in the mainstream infectious disease community, but from um, some advocacy groups and alternative care providers that have uh, maintained that um, there's an entity called chronic Lyme disease. Um, and first, let me clarify, you, you can have a late stage or long lasting form of Lyme disease, but we don't call it that. Uh, we call it late stage Lyme disease. What's typically meant by chronic Lyme disease is in the people who are advocating this idea is that there is um, after conventional treatment for Lyme disease, persistent symptoms may, may exist in 10 to 20% of people. And the conjecture is, is that it's Lyme disease that's persisting, that the treatment course that's been sort of standard treatment didn't kill off all the Lyme bacteria. Now, the what's happened with that is that um, this is sort of expanded to even people who don't have, you know, a confirmed diagnosis of Lyme. They've just got a constellation of symptoms and people will say, I think this is chronic Lyme disease. And, and people who may have had Lyme disease and have ongoing symptoms, this is chronic Lyme disease. And they'll get offered prolonged courses of antibiotics and all kinds of alternative treatments. And in infectious disease society and their professional guidelines reviewed all the literature and all the science on this and said, you know, there's just no evidence for this persistence of bacteria in the body. A lot of people have tried to look for this and there's no good evidence for this. And there's no good evidence that standard treatment courses are not eradicating the bacteria and that more treatment is going to add anything. And the, some of the advocacy groups took up uh, with a, a champion that they had in the Connecticut state's attorney general who um, kind of threatened uh, almost like with a lawsuit, the Infectious Disease Society over their guidelines, that it was keeping insurance companies from paying for these prolonged courses of antibiotics, sometimes months to years of antibiotics, and reimbursing for these sorts of things, and, and sometimes disciplining doctors that were doing these practices. That's outside of what the Infectious Disease Society says. They just said, here's what we think is the standard you know, of care. And that led to uh, a lot of conflict and controversy where we had to bring in an independent group to review the literature from the outside, an independent ombudsman to uh, you know, review all the science. They basically ended up in the same place. Yep, these guidelines are sound. This is the best science and the best evidence. And, and what's happened is you know, we've had now large randomized controlled trials paid for by the NIH to answer this question because this nagging question has been out there. And every one of them has not shown any benefit to these prolonged antibiotics, but it was a significant controversy. So what was the source of that? Where did evaluating the evidence go wrong? So I think when there's, when there's a, a knowledge gap, this sort of thing, you know, flows in. So it is true that there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 20% of people with Lyme disease that have persistent symptoms afterwards. And we don't know why we, you know, where there's a lot of speculation, a lot of research on it, but we don't know why they have something, something is going on. And then we also have lots of other people that have vague symptoms, you know, that we don't know why they have it. Fatigue, chronic headaches, irritable bowel syndrome, kind of the fibromyalgia, these tins of things, you know, often seek, we want an answer. 
Um, and so when we don't have, when medicine doesn't offer good answers, alternative things kind of come in to fill in the gap and, um, and poor science or low quality evidence um, will get kind of put forward as a reason to do these things um, that, you know, isn't supported by better quality evidence. Paul Carson, can you tell us a little bit more about maybe how we should think about this where science is being reversed only a, a few years later? We thought it was settled and and we find out that it's actually not. You know, th- this this happens all the time. Your your parents quote, Andrew, of like half of what you're studying is probably going to be wrong. I think it's, I heard the same thing, you know, early in my medical training. And I think it's true. So uh, some of the examples, think about where we were with like uh, cholesterol or fatty foods, butter, eggs, you know, at, at one point they're like, these are terrible for you. Then it's kind of like, eh, maybe they're okay. And then it was maybe they're bad again. And now we're back to okay again. It's sort of been whipsawed on, you know, the association between uh, fatty foods and cholesterol as not being causal. And that, that actually led to some great harm. The whole American Dietary Association, you know, a few decades ago said, get away from fatty foods. And what did we switch to? We switched to carbohydrates and, and processed foods more and, and sugar to, to some extent that they weren't advocating that specifically. That's what happened, which is turning out to probably be far worse. Um, you know, we've had things like um, low dose aspirin for stroke prevention. And at one point it was kind of being advocated for, uh, I'm not real expert on this, but like everybody over the age of like 50 or 60. And then it turned out, mm, looks like when we look at this a little harder, there's harms that come from that. We need to be much narrower in who we give those kinds of recommendations to. Um, we've had the example of, I mean, I've seen vitamin E supplementation as a sort of supplement in search of a disease to like help here. It's, uh, it's been tried for, and, and, and there was some biologic reasons to think it might be uh, helpful for things like uh, preventing heart disease and preventing cancer and other things. And and then larger studies get done and it turns out to not be a benefit. Paul, you have a quote that, that you, you like to mention that kind of encompasses this idea. Yeah, this is, uh, I read this um, when I was kind of reading about the difficulty of communicating science and the scientific process to the general public. And I came across, across this quote, quote by a psychologist named Dr. David Barash. He, he, he writes uh, extensively. He's written some books. And in, this, in kind of talking about the nature of science, he says, the capacity for self-correction is the source of science's immense strength, but the public is unnerved by the fact that scientific wisdom isn't immutable. Scientific knowledge changes with great speed and frequency as it should, Yet the public opinion drags with reluctance to be modified once established. And the rapid ebb and flow of scientific, quotes, wisdom has left many people feeling jerked around, confused, and increasingly resistance, uh, resistant to science itself. And I think that idea of like, you said this last week and now you're saying something different. We know that th- this self-correction, this oscillation towards truth is really science's strength. It's like, you know, something's wrong or you're kind of putting out baloney, somebody's going to catch you on it, you know, um, because we, we re-verify and we recheck and we do better studies. That's its strength, but it looks like making sausage to the general public. It looks, and, and it often leaves people thinking like they don't know what they're doing. So Paul Carson, sometimes we think that uh, the results of studies from test tubes or animals are something we can immediately apply to human beings. Why might that be dangerous? Yeah, the the vast majority of test tube studies and even animal studies that have some implication potentially for for a health claim on human health don't bear out. So this is a good place for Paul Cieslak's, you know, quote from the philosopher Santiana to have a lot of skepticism and intellectual chastity. An example that you and I saw, Tom, from a recent talk on epidemiology and epidemiologic studies was how uh, a health claim around drinking red wine in, uh, may prevent breast cancer. And what was that based on? This was in this was in the UK t- uh, newspaper, The Telegraph. And that was based on the fact that there was a test tube study where they took breast cancer cells in a basically in a petri dish, exposed them to large, large doses of resveratrol, a count- compound that's found in red wine and found that those breast cancer cells um, didn't grow as well in the presence of these large doses of resveratrol. And the 
The people who were writing for the newspaper said, red wine may prevent breast cancer. They weren't studying breast cancer in women. They weren't studying. There's no human involved here. This is just a test tube. This is a huge leap to making a claim like that. And in fact, we know that alcohol is a risk factor for breast cancer. So drinking a lot of red wine may make you happy for other reasons, but it may not <laughs> prevent breast cancer. In fact, it might even help cause breast cancer. So, Paul, what can we do for the younger generation to try to raise a community, a culture that looks more rationally at medical evidence? Yeah, I've been looking a lot more at the the writings and thoughts of a, a researcher named Andrew Oxman, who's been really taken up with this these problems of health illiteracy, the lack of the ability of most of us to evaluate health claims uh, with on how solid or how good their evidence is. And he's had the idea that we need to kind of take this to the street, if you will. Um, and he's he started with a little experiment that he did in his 10-year-old's class. <laughs> and he's repeated this a few times in a number of different settings. And he went into this class and he told these 10-year-olds, we're going to do a little, little uh, uh, discussion and possible science experiment. And he said, there's some teenagers that have said when they eat red M&Ms, it makes them feel better and elevates their mood and generally gives them a better sense of well-being. But a few of them notice that when they stand up after they eat red M&Ms, they might get lightheaded and feel a little sick in a, in a small number of them. I want you to think about how you'd try and prove whether that's true or not, he tells these 10-year-olds. And he divided them up into groups and kind of let them talk amongst themselves. And lo and behold, they figured out that, you know, if we're going to try and you know, get an answer on this. We need a control group. They came to that conclusion on their own. And actually he gave each of them a big bag of M&Ms of all different kinds of colors. And he said, go figure out how to, how to test whether this is true or not. And they came to it on their own that they blinded people to, uh, you know, what color of M&M they were eating. And then they uh, assessed their mood and assessed them for stomach aches or lightheadedness when they stood up and so on. And lo and behold, they found um, that this wasn't true at all, that there was no correlation uh, between eating these red M&Ms and these, these claims. So these 10-year-olds were able to intuitively come to that. And, uh, and he started to develop a curriculum for high school students and actually for adults on how to evaluate health claims. And it's getting some basic literacy like we were talking about around, is there a control group? Was the exposure assigned by someone or not? Um, how would we rule out confirmation bias? And some other basic things like, does the person making the claim, are they making money off of that claim? That's a good question to ask and all these things. And I, I think we, re we really need to be um, uh, doing this more and more in our, in our uh, basic education. Paul Cieslak, you know, some, something we hear about a lot are the clustering of uncom uncommon cancers in certain geographic areas. How should we interpret stories like this and what studies on this subject? Right. Can uh, cancer clusters actually have been reported pretty regularly to uh, public health officials who then have to investigate and try to figure out whether there's anything there. <laughs> um, and almost invariably, they come up with nothing. Like we, we don't find any uh, environmental uh, toxin that could be causing these cancer clusters, and uh, and they end up being zeros. And I think uh, what we have here, well, first of all, let me just say they, they need to be treated as a hypothesis and not as a conclusion. But secondly, we have the what we call the Texas sharpshooter problem, and uh, and and what that is is um, <laughs> you, you draw the circle around the target after you fire the shots. So you know you you, you take a bunch of shots at the side of the barn, and then you and then you draw the target after where, where you see where the uh, where the bullets went. And uh, with these cancer clusters, you know they're they're saying in retrospect, well, it was in this community, and then you find one in the next community, and you go, well, okay, we'll expand the circle a little bit and all the cases occurred in this uh, particular area so you can draw the circle around it after the fact as as opposed to uh, you know looking at where some environmental exposure is and then saying well if if it's going to be causing cancers we would be expecting them in in this other place so uh, you know in general a, a lot of skepticism around these uh, little little clusters of two and three and, and four cases of anything and Paul, how have you seen the tendency toward confirmation bias, in other words, proving you you were right, take place? And how do you guide yeah, against I, it? You know, I'll, I'll say 
personally that uh, one of one of the things that where I was I think guilty of confirmation bias was um, around how COVID nineteen is transmitted. You know, it's a coronavirus. The coronavirus also causes the common cold, and so I sort of inferred that uh, that SARS CoV two was likely to be transmitted in the same fashion, and it would be by the droplet route. It's not by the airborne route. It's not going to be transmitted through the air over over distances. It's all going to be, you know, within a few feet of people, and and therefore, you know. Uh, masking was less necessary, and and uh, keeping six six feet of distance was was all important. And uh, I, I, you know, looked for studies uh, that confirm that, and was initially resistant to some studies saying, well, here's here's an outbreak in a restaurant where uh, people remained at quite a distance from each other, and and practically the whole restaurant got infected. You know, and I, I kind of discounted uh, that kind of thing, but eventually uh, the, the evidence. Uh, became uh, more compelling. I, I was forced to say, well, I was wrong about that and, and embrace the masking. Um, I think another example uh, is um, the hydroxychloroquine story. You know, we, we had the evidence in a, in a test tube, if you will, that hydroxychloroquine might work. And we had a few cases of people who took hydroxychloroquine. And then, then you had a lot of doctors who were administering it and saying, none of my patients are getting very sick. You know, well, you know, in Oregon anyway, uh, of all the uh, patients with COVID, 4% only have, have been hospitalized with it. So, you know, you treat, you're, you're a doctor, you treat 20 patients with hydroxychloroquine and nobody's landed in the hospital. And, and you're, you're thinking, uh, I've confirmed the hypothesis, but, but you really haven't. And, and once again, because you didn't have a control group, you, you didn't say, well, what would 20 people without hydroxychloroquine have done? Last 30 seconds, what advice do you have for listeners on this? Back to the Santiana quote, uh, keep your intellectual chastity. I think uh, humility here is, is kind of the virtue of the day for all of us to kind of be humble about these things and, and slow to give away uh, you know, our, our assent to these various things I, I think is, would be helpful to all of us. Paul Carson, Paul Cieslak, thanks so much for being with us here on Dr. Doctor to talk about evaluating medical evidence. And we are back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. Yes, controlled studies in the Bible. In what book of the Bible do we see a controlled study of the beneficial effects of two diets on the health of two groups of individuals? Andrew, do you remember the story? You know, thanks to Father Mike, I remember the story. I couldn't place it, so I'm happy to get the answer. Yeah, it's the book of Daniel. And that's when Daniel and his Three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, otherwise known as Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, they don't want to eat all the good food off of the king's table because they thought they would be defiling themselves as Jews. So they work out this deal with the head steward who kind of had a good attitude toward them and said, hey, let us eat vegetables for 10 days. You compare us to the rest of the guys and see how we look. And lo and behold, at the end of 10 days, they look sleek, stronger, smarter. And so the steward let them continue eating the vegetables. That was the study. That may bleed into one of our diet episodes, Tom. I think that's good, good advice <laughs> it, in many ways. It could happen. Yeah, the, the raw diet, the vegetables-only diet, which we are not here on Dr. Doctor promoting. <laughs> so, And, and uh, was there a control group? Yes, there was a control group, the, the group of youths who were eating from the table of the, uh, uh, the king. Question, was confirmation bias at play? You know, the chief eunuch in charge of them really liked these guys and probably wanted it to work out. So he may have had some rose-colored glasses on. But anyway, moving on to what are the top three takeaways from this episode, Andrew? Well, I'd say number one, you've got to ask, what is the control group, the people who didn't get the intervention, and is there any confounding? Just because something's correlated does not mean that it's causative. So just asking those questions after reading the headline. I'd say number two, there's a, a quote that one of the Pauls gave us from Andrew Offit, I think, or Paul Offit, I'm sorry, uh, that says, mice lie and <laughs> chimpanzees exaggerate. And so just because something works in animals or in a test tube does not make it good data, and I would not base my life on it. You need real randomized studies not even just general opinion or observational studies, randomized studies are what you want. And I'd, I'd say number three, the, the take home 
Paul Carson hit on it at the end there was humility. You know, in, in healthcare, we get very comfortable with having science change. And it's it's different. And many people feel like, well, they don't know what they're talking about. It's a little different than that. You do know what you're talking about, but you got to be humble and be expecting things to change and be ready to pivot and say, hey, we had that wrong thing. Goodness, we got some new information. This is the best that we know right now. And and I think that is an opportunity for all of us to grow in humility, which is a goal of mine. Yes. I remember in college, I went to one philosophy of science lecture, and that's the one thing I learned from it, is that with science, things are repeatedly changing, but they will hone in over time closer and closer to what the reality is, what the, the truth is. So settled science is somewhat of an oxymoron, but we have to go and base today's decisions on what we know today, because we don't know what we're going to know tomorrow. You do the best you can. That's all you can do. Amen. And on that note, we thank you for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. You can also find all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. For those who want to dive deeper into some of the topics, check out our website for bonus links and information, a lot in this episode. Click latest at the top of the main page. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.